Namutasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Sama Sambuddhasa Namutasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Sama Sambuddhasa Namutasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangam Namasami I'd like to dedicate today's talk to our parents, those of us who have parents still living and those of us who have lost our parents, and to all our teachers and to our family members. I think of Nisanka especially. And to our children, those of you that have children, to our brothers and sisters, our aunts, our uncles, our cousins. And then if we keep going, let's just say to all beings everywhere who have life, who want to live, who are losing their life. Hmm. So the Buddha instructs us to practice generosity, virtue, cultivation of the mind, and realize the wisdom of the heart. Those of you that have come today bringing offerings have the joy of that, the great joy of bringing offerings, of giving freely. And this brings a lot of joy in the heart. So it's wonderful to contemplate that virtue comes from generosity. Um, generosity is already a virtuous act because instead of thinking only of ourselves, we're thinking of how we can help others, how we can serve. And in particularly when we're serving those who are living the holy life or trying to purify their minds, then this is an act of great merit. And from there, experiencing the joy in the heart, we have the ability to relax the body and when the body is relaxed, we can more deeply, when we meditate, we can more deeply relax with the mind, relax the mind. Once there's joy in the heart, it's much easier to sit down and practice and relax the mind. So it's, it's really wonderful for us to practice that generosity not just in giving material support or moral support, but the moral support that comes from purifying the mind. So bringing in joy is difficult to be joyful when we don't feel good about ourselves. So when we sit down to practice, we are really faced with how we are. And this is an important thing for us to do. 
It's just like when a doctor examines a patient, the doctor looks for a disease in the body and has to get different instruments. If we have a disease of the throat, then they'll be looking in the throat, examining with a light shining there, maybe even have to insert some instrument that can see better than the eye. In meditation practice, we're looking for the disease of the mind. Most people would say, I don't have a disease of the mind. Most people really think that. But well, they may not have a disease like uh, a tumor or fever or a virus that is bringing uh, fever and heat. But if we look at the condition of the mind, we can see when we close our eyes, how, are, how much are we restless? How much are we anxious? How tired do we feel? How stressed? How much does the mind go to the past? How much does it go to tomorrow, to next week? Christmas, New Year's, planning, next year, 2016. How much does the mind travel back and forth? So that is a dis-ease. There is no ease there. We're, we're vacillating, we're moving. We're, we're waiting, we're wanting. Those energies are not still, they're not settled. So if we think we have no dis-ease, actually we have so much dis-ease. As soon as we enter into relationship with another person, even if we feel happy just on our own, then we have to deal with the other person's anxiety, restlessness, worry, complaints, criticisms, dis-ease. So dis-ease is internal, it's external. We may find ease from our joy, and then we may feel that same dis-ease coming when another person arrives and is not joyful. We have to deal with that. So to cultivate uh, and relax the mind, to cultivate that joy and well-being and be able to relax the mind in order to let go the world, we have to go beyond all our connections, attachments, even if it's only for one hour. We have to be able to put them down and let the mind grow still enough to really get to know what is it. Where are we? What are we? What's your name? Anna. Anna, I asked you, where are you from? And then, where are you from? We ask ourselves, where am I from? Where is this being from? Where is this consciousness from? We're not from, it's not from any place. If we examine consciousness, we feel the brightness of our joy, and then that settles into uh, a greater stillness so that the mind is not creating many kinds of formations, visual, 
or imaginary, no thought production, no fabrication. Then we start to examine where, where is this consciousness from? How does it arise? And where does it go? What, does it, what is it attracted to? What is it drawn towards? So we try to hold still and be present for it. And then we, we see that this consciousness is not from Germany, is it? It's not from Canada. It's not from Gatineau or from Ottawa or from Perth. Where is this consciousness from? Well, these are questions that we begin to see we can't answer because consciousness does not arise from a place. And all these kinds of conceptual questions about who am I cannot be answered in the way we ask about somebody, who are you, or ourselves, who am I, and we say, I am I'm a nun, or I'm a woman, or uh, I'm a senior citizen. <laughs> or I'm a kindergarten teacher. That's not who we are either. So in studying the mind, we begin to probe and find out what, what is this that we're experiencing within when there is no thinking? What is behind thought? What is beyond thought? And we get into the beginnings, the glimmerings of understanding the nature of consciousness, the nature of the mind. We see that everything else that consciousness picks up and knows is impermanent, is unsatisfactory, and is not what we are. Even consciousness itself is impermanent, is, is a suffering. It's not staying still. It's constantly going from object to object and is not what we are. But consciousness has the ability to know beyond itself. It's in the purification of consciousness, there emerges an understanding and a wisdom that can satisfy our deepest hunger all right, what is our deepest hunger? <laughs> we travel the world, New Zealand, Germany, England, Asia, traveling, circling the world, looking for what will fully satisfy our wanting. And we never find it. We go from sense door to sense door, from seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, sensation, and experience, to look for that one thing that will satisfy our deepest hunger. And we never find it. Even if we listen to the most thrilling piece of classical music, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, we love it so much, and we listen to it, and the mind is thrilled. We feel thrilled. 
listening, okay, if you don't like Beethoven, but whatever your favorite, is it Led Zeppelin? <laughs> I don't know the modern <laughs> pieces. What is your favorite thrilling piece of music? How many times can you listen to it? After how many minutes will you be sick of it? Have you ever tried to play something over and over again, and finally you have to quickly reach and press the off button, because it starts to drive you crazy? Isn't it? Why is that? Why is the thing that we love, that is so thrilling, after we listen to it over and over again, it becomes deafening, maddening, unbearable. Shut that thing off, I can't hear it anymore. We even do that with our children. When they're small and cute, they can giggle and talk forever. But then if they just keep on jabbering and <laughs> poking at us and, and asking us to do things, we just tell them to be quiet. Go sit there, leave me alone. Why, why is the mind like that? So there's, there's a, there is a level at which the sense media can give us pleasure. But when we experience the silence of the mind, when we experience the dissolution of thought, of mental fabrication, when we can know the absolute pure brightness of our own mental awareness. The thrilling joy that comes from that is not tiring. In fact, by itself, when we experience it, it doesn't last. When we first begin to know the purity of the mind, there is that thrill, that experience of bliss, of and then we want that mind state again and again. But when it comes again and is more familiar and develops and matures, it goes deeper. And it's no longer thrilling, but it's ever more satisfying. It becomes a feast of truth. There is nothing quite so satisfying in this world. Nothing compares with the joy of that. And then the deeper we go into that stillness of mind, the more we realize where true happiness rests. We don't have to travel anywhere. We just have to develop the wisdom within us. We have to continually focus our concentration inward and develop that virtue within the mind itself. The virtue of the body is developed through dana, sila, so generosity, and then right speech and right action. The purity of the spoken act, moving the lips, bringing forth speech that is harmless, that is gentle, that is true, that is forgiving, that is accepting, that is tolerant, that is not deceitful, that is not frivolous. This is a, a speech that helps the mind to grow silent. 
and our conduct also to be harmless, to be harmonious, kind, compassionate, supportive, to be pure in our conduct, not to kill any living thing, but to save life and to save other people from harm, harming themselves, harming others, to save beings, to save, even if you save energy, like a kindness towards the creatures, the trees, the earth. This is right action. These acts, this kind of conduct, also brings the mind to silence. Because once we're focusing inward and studying our inner state and asking those profound questions, where does this consciousness come from? Who is this being that is conscious, which we think is I? Where is this I? Then those kinds of questions cannot be asked when we are remembering all our unskillful ways of dealing with others, all the unskillful thoughts we may have, all the cruel or thoughtless, careless acts that we have committed, we start to remember them. Then it would be impossible for us to really settle the heart because we would be full of remorse and regret. But if we have that kind of remorse, and then we make a determination to purify our speech and conduct, and then we bring that to life, this will support the silence, the depth of silence and inner contemplative joy and happiness that we experience. So the virtue of physical conduct supports the virtue of mental conduct. And when I say mental conduct, I mean thought and letting go thought, and then non-thinking, and the profound excavation that we do within the mind. This is based on an ability to purify virtue internally. It is, it is a growing virtue of the mind. And when the mind does express its inner purity to us, we can feel such a radiance that we come back into relationship with the world full of a joy that is palpable. People come here and say, oh, it's so peaceful here. Well, the peace that is here is only the peace that we feel when we let go of the world, when we let go our anxiety, our restlessness, and we come into a space where other people are practicing that. Letting go fear, letting go anger, resolving anxiety, resolving restlessness, bringing it to resolution, reconciling within. Being mindful, more and more aware 
how, what is the state of the mind? So what we see here is just a reflection of what is within us. And it's because so many of you, um, every week, sometimes daily, and our own resident community, practice and bring to the table here, offer to this space year after year, is that yearning to satisfy the deepest hunger. It's a spiritual hunger. That yearning for it and that those all the little moments of realization that we have, we have them here, we bring them here, we embed them in the energy of the place through our pure presence. Now, if the whole world were to engage in this way, how much blessing? It's, it's really free. It's not an economy of material gain. It's an economy of spiritual gain and spiritual gift. So again, through generosity, we receive these spiritual bounties, just immeasurable, exalted, boundless qualities of mind that are greater than the bank accounts of any billionaire. Thinking that one human being would collect a billion dollars? Why? For what? <laughs> it just it seems somehow so imbalanced for any human being to collect so much material wealth and hold on to it. What a burden that would be. What a terrible burden. One could, one would probably struggle to be free in the mind having so much of the world to look after. How could the mind ever rest with that kind of burden? And yet, people like that have so much power over the world, over the minds of other people. But the Buddha did not have a billion dollars. Buddha doesn't stand for billion. <laughs> it stands for enlightenment. It stands for a spiritual, boundless abundance. And this is the wealth that we're here to, to seek. And where will we find it? Not in the world. The billions of the world will not give us what we're really hungering for. Even if Mr. Trump had two billion, three billion, five billion, he would not be happy. And none of his followers would be happy. And none of us who run after those ways of wealth, they will never satisfy that inner hunger. But to sit, in the stillness of an afternoon or a morning and be present for that pure consciousness to emerge 
and to realize the wisdom within it. That's, that's our real inheritance. That's our true, a true gain for us. This would give us the, the biggest happiness, the depth of peace. So it starts with the gift of food, a gift of medicine, a kind word, a forgiveness, um, living a skillful life, dedicating ourselves to that which really supports us, not to frivolous activity, not to rushing here and there. Somebody told us recently, in a rather uh, humorous way, I'm going shopping next week. And you know, I just found it curious. And I thought, well, what are people shopping for? They're shopping for gifts to buy other people. And so even today, we, we also, we've prepared gifts for our sister who's coming back after a 10-day retreat. But actually, it's just we so want to give the physical things, but actually the real gift is what we're going to receive, is to have her back with us, her presence, and to see her shiny face after meditating for a hundred hours, you know, intensively. We're, we're the recipients of that gift. So we didn't go shopping, we just raided the cupboards, <laughs> looked for a few extra things that we could find that people have brought. That would make her just, just a way of uh, rejoicing in the moment. But yes, this, these, are, these are good things to do, but it's, it's a celebration of the practice. It's just a sharing. We share food together, we share the space together, we share our lives together, we share the, the difficulties, we console each other, comfort each other when we feel discouraged and we rejoice when we are coming through a dark time, back to strength. So life is full of dukkha, but remember, dukkha by itself is not the problem. Dukkha is our teacher. Because the real joy comes in knowing our strength to see the emptiness, the impermanence, and the dukkha of this dukkha. That's not what we are. Our ability to understand it is our strength. And our ability to learn from it gives us the wisdom to then experience equanimity. And equanimity is the mind that can realize the truth of the way things are, of what we are. The practice 
is every day, everywhere. Even if you go shopping, practicing restraint, looking at other people, seeing the, seeing the greed, and seeing the happiness, seeing the burden in people's faces, seeing their wish for companionship, for love, for peace, seeing their frustration. Then we can bring to mind those qualities of compassion, of empathy, and wishing others well. Our strength, from the, starting from that generosity, ends, or doesn't end, but matures in giving back the generosity that we receive giving back the kindness and compassion that we receive. So the virtue goes full circle from enlightenment, even a moment of awareness, even a moment of kindness, to constantly repeating that and bringing it back to consciousness so that we're not uh, discounting the power of it, it creates a force in the heart. A field of goodness. So, I offer that for your reflection today. Pandamayam dhamakataya sadhukam dadamase sadhu sadhu